And now, Virgin Most Powerful Radio is pleased to present Hands-On Apologetics with renowned Catholic author and apologist, Gary Machuda. And welcome, everybody, to Hands-On Apologetics. You have entered into Virgin Most Powerful's Apologetics Dojo. It's great to be with you today. Hope uh, all of you had a wonderful 4th of July weekend. Uh, I know that I had and uh, recharged batteries, getting ready to go back into the gym. I don't know how you are. If, if you're a person that uh, maybe is into sports, does a lot of personal training, that type of stuff, uh, holidays are difficult, usually not just because it's easy to eat and get off your diet. But, you know, you're in a routine, and uh, it breaks the routine. So getting back into the gym, off, even just an extended weekend, can sometimes be difficult. But you know what? When it comes to defending the faith, since it comes from our love for Christ, you know, it, you don't have that same impact. You are ready to run. In fact, uh, maybe you are counting down the minutes to get back into the stream of things and start uh, explaining, defending the faith out there. So I uh, hope you guys feel this that way. I know I do. And it's just great to be back in the dojo. So uh, we've got a great show in store for us today. Um, we're going to talk philosophy. So we're going to get right into some uh, high-impact, heavy lifting, intellectually speaking. But hopefully it won't be that bad. Although we are going to be tackling one of the most uh, substantial objections against the existence of God, and that is the problem of evil. A problem of evil. How can you have a loving, just God when there's just so much evil in the world? And man, all you have to do is just keep abreast of the uh, movies, news, social media, and you can just see evil happening before your eyes how could a good loving god allow this and uh that's been a major objection against the existence of god for really for immemorial i mean it's always been a kind of conflict but uh we are fortunate we live in an age where in terms of philosophy and logic it it's largely resolved it's no longer uh at least if you want to get out and, and do the charts and everything uh, it can be overcome very easily and rationally. However, there always is this uh, second aspect to the problem of evil, which is um, the emotional aspect, you know, the human aspect. Uh, arguments and evidence doesn't help a person who's suffering and suffering evil. So uh, there's always that emotional component, too. But anyway, uh, a fellow that uh, I think is fantastic and a real trailblazer in some ways at popularizing what's going on in academia for uh, for God and for the church is Pat Flynn of the Pat Flynn Show and uh, also Philosophy for the People. And he's going to be coming up on the other side of the break. And we're going to revisit this topic of the problem of evil because he's been doing a lot of work. As you know, Pat Flynn himself was an atheist and an intellectual atheist at that. He wasn't, you know, he was just, uh, you know, some teen, teen that fell off the radar screen partying and, you know, uh, thinking it's fun to make fun of the uh, Judeo-Christian God. Uh, he really thought out his position. In fact, he thought it out so much that he came to realize 
that there has to be a better solution than atheism. Lo and behold, he found it in St. Thomas Aquinas. He became a theist, became uh, back to Christianity, and back to Catholicism. And now he's doing uh, remarkable work in popularizing philosophy. So uh, it's always no known philosophy as a defender of the faith because uh, today we got to be hitting all cylinders, so to speak, and be able to cover a wide variety of objections. And so whenever you're dealing with atheism or agnosticism or something like that, you're going to deal with philosophical questions. So I think it's great to have Pat on the show just to sharpen our critical thinking skills in the area of metaphysics and uh, especially with the topic today, which is, like I said, the ultimate objection, I think, to theism, to belief that there is a God and he exists. That's coming up on the other side of the break. This side of the break, we're going to do our own sharpening of our critical thinking, and that is through the Finding the Fallacy segment. Today's Finding the Fallacy is the Poo Poo Fallacy. Yeah, I know, very imaginative name. <laughs> After all this heady stuff about what we're going to be talking about with Pat. Yeah, we're going to talk about Poopo on this side of the break. And uh, we're also going to an early church father. Today's early church father happens to be a council of the church, the Council of Elvira. So, lots of great stuff in store for us. So I want to welcome all of you to the dojo. Welcome aboard, everybody, to uh, our show, beginning with our live stream audience. And also, all of you listening on radio around the country and via podcasts around the world. Howdy, folks. Welcome aboard. Uh, great to have you with us. And uh, let me point a couple of resources out to you as we do every show. I want to tell you about VirginMostPowerfulRadio.org, which is the flagship website for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. You might even want to uh, bookmark this or even make it your homepage so when you go on the internet first thing you see is Virgin Most Powerful Radio because there's always uh, events there's conferences coming up all of that's in store and it's right there on the webpage you just click it for all the details some really exciting stuff too um, also on the virginmostpowerfulradio.org website you can access programs and that's where you can uh, be a uh, with a click of a button, you can be an evangelist by sharing programs, telling people about us, and uh, sharing resources. All that's made available on the website. Just go to handsonapologetics.com, click on that. It'll bring up uh, the list of programs. You can share them with your friends, download them, do whatever you'd like. Also, I want to give you the official Dojo mailbox, which is questions at handsonapologetics.com. That's the official Dojo Mailbox. Comes directly to me, the sensei. And I do answer the emails. Yes, I do. And I do it personally. No secretaries, no anything like that. Midwest Command Center, although very powerful, is very small. So I, I answer all my own emails. All right, let's see. Let's go to the Finding the Fallacy for today, which is the Poo Poo Fallacy. The poo-poo fallacy is a fallacy of informal logic that consists of dismissing an argument as being unworthy of serious consideration. Scholars generally characterize the fallacy as a rhetorical de a, a device in which the speaker ridicules an argument without responding to the substance of the argument. By the way, this also is known as the appeal to ridicule. 
and as you know, if you've listened to the show, many times fallacies go by lots of AKA, otherwise known as. And so, yeah, this and, uh, you know, so if if you're too embarrassed to say, hey, you're committing the poo-poo fallacy, you can always say you're committing the fallacy of the appeal to ridicule. Um, and basically, they, they are the same thing. It's dismissing an argument as being unworthy of serious consideration. In other words, uh, you what you're trying to do is deflect the audience's attention away from the argument or evidence and to something else. And that could be done if you're ridiculing uh, the position. Uh, that that would be this fallacy. Or there's another form very similar, which is the uh, ad hominem argument in which you ridicule the person who's giving the message. But either way, it's a deflection. So just like with ad hominem arguments, the poo-poo fallacy, what you need to do is uh, absorb, say, uh, yeah, all the stuff, even if it's true. Nevertheless, then you want to refocus. What about my argument? What about the evidence? So you want to try to absorb whatever uh, they're throwing at you and then uh, redirect. And when you do that, you put the focus where it really should be, on the argument and evidence. And that is today's Finding the Fallacy, the Poo-Poo Fallacy. All right, uh, let's go and meet our early church father for today. Like I said, it's not an individual. It's a collection of individuals, the Council of Elvira. The city of Elvira was at or near the site of the present city of Granada in Spain, 19 bishops, including the celebrated Usius Horsius of uh, Cordova, were present along with 26 priests and deacons. So this is a, a local council in Spain. The council was of a reformed nature. A large part of the 81 canons reflect earlier legislation of African origin. Numerous states have been assigned as uh, at the council from the extremes of as early as 250 AD to as late as 700 AD. Um, and this was, uh, this latter date was proposed by the Centuriators of Magdeburg, which if you know, that's the origin of a lot of no popery history. Uh, scholars, however, have done a lot of research in trying to pinpoint the date. And actually it's a lot harder than you think. But the best work appears to have concluded with great probability that it uh, met around 295 to 303 A.D., somewhere within there. Most scholars will put the council at 300 A.D. And uh, there's 81 canons, and I highly recommend, especially if you think the church is in bad shape now, uh, look up these canons from the council, because you'll see the state of affairs in Spain around the year 300. You might actually think things are pretty good to in comparison. But nevertheless, uh, very interesting. And uh, yeah, I, th I think we'll just park it there. And that is our early church father for today, the Council of Avira. And coming up next, we're going to be chatting with our good friend, Pat Flynn. Dive into philosophy and look at the problem of evil. Stay tuned, everybody. You listen to Hands-On Apologetics. We're going to be right back. Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. 
If you'd like to join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody, in Hands-On Apologetics. Well, when we're talking the existence of God, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas actually offered only two uh, objections for his consideration, one of which is what we're going to be talking about today, the problem of evil. And help us do that. We have a good friend, Pat Flynn. As you know, Pat Flynn is the host of the Pat Flynn Show. Covers everything from fitness to mental health to business, writing, philosophy, and theology. He's best-selling author, philosopher, fitness coach, uh, musician, and entrepreneur. And he expounds on the theory of generalism, a theory applicable to each and every one of us. He also runs the amazingly popular and important, I think, Philosophy for the People on YouTube. So if any of you love philosophy and you, you love talking philosophy, learning philosophy, check it out, Philosophy for the People on YouTube. And Pat, welcome back to Hands-On Apologetics. Gary, always a pleasure. So glad to be here. It's been a while, so happy to be back. Yeah, yeah. Well, happy 4th of July. I'm, I'm glad that uh, you're on after the festivities. Yes, indeed. Yeah, we had a fun time. Just a little cookout, you know, yesterday. I think nothing too fancy, but it, it was nice. Got to see some family. Nice. Yeah, good. Good. So, um, yeah, <laughs> it, you know, we go on a break and then you come back and you pick such a light topic, you know. Right, such right. Such an easy light topic is the problem of evil. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'll, I'll let you set it up and I'll, I'll just follow you wherever you want to go. Yeah, well, I've been revisiting this this uh, topic for a number of reasons, and I thought it might be interesting to explore some of the different ways that I think theists, especially classical theists, can and should think about the problem of evil. In fact, it's something that, that my own thought has developed on is, is still developing, and I actually seem to be getting more aggressive and bold in my responses to the problem of evil. So First off, it's really it's really problems of evil. We should we should clarify that. I mean, traditionally you have your sort of strong form logical problems of evil, uh, and these are supposedly meant to show that there's some sort of strict incompatibility between God and the suffering and evil in our world. Uh, there's just something contradictory about those those two things, such that they absolutely cannot coexist or co-occur. This goes all the way back to your famous Epicurean type paradoxes and stuff like that. However, I think it it has been been acknowledged that the logical form of of the problem of evil is is has been largely abandoned. It's 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 kind of been thrown into the philosophical dustbin. It seems like even most atheists and skeptics are are willing to to admit that. Uh, occasionally, you see these valiant attempts at resuscitating it, but they quickly run into the same fundamental issue is that nobody can tell you exactly what that contradiction is. What is it between an all good God and the suffering and evil of our experience that makes these two things strictly incompatible and, and skeptics have tried, but they've never been able to really tell us exactly what that is, at least without any major begging of the question. So the conversation has really sort of shifted uh, towards uh, a different version called the evidential problem of evil. And the evidential problem of evil would, would say something more like this. This is sort of first championed by a skeptic named Bill Rowe. Okay, maybe uh, evil and, and God aren't strictly incompatible, but but given uh, the evil and suffering of our experience, either the types of evil, the quantity of evil, the, for, for the frequency, the duration, it just counts as evidence against God's existence to some degree. 
Now, skeptics vary here. Some will say that it's like really, really strong evidence. Like you should be 98% certain uh, that atheism is true, given the amount of or types of evil that we see. Others are more modest. They say, yeah, it's it's some evidence. It's a weight in the scale, but it's it's not totally decisive. So that's sort of the landscape. And uh, yeah, it's, the conversation, I think, has really shifted more towards these evidential considerations that evil and suffering seems to count as evidence against the existence of God. And then different skeptics will give different sort of assignments of of how much how much credence, you know, how much confidence should you have in the naturalistic hypothesis, if you will, given the suffering and evil that we experience. So how's that for, for just a, a, an yeah. analysis of what's yeah. going on? Yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah, that's that's a really good summary, and it's interesting that there's this retreat from you know highly focused uh, logic-based argument to now it's it's kind of retreated to a probability argument, which maybe also you know emotions could factor in as well, you know, mm. because mm -hmm. uh, you know once you reach the tipping point where it just seems that there's just too much evil out there that that God couldn't have existed, um, I, I see that as a victory you know, in terms right. of uh, argumentation. Yeah, I mean, that I think that's certainly right. The fact that, again, from from the, from my impression of swimming in the philosophical circles, it seems like even most skeptics will will grant that, yeah, the logical problem of evil is it's kind of it's kind of done. It's these evidential problems of evil that they're they're really pressing right now. So I think that is a victory. I think that the theist has uh, I also think it's 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 proof that philosophy actually can make progress every now and then might be slow, <laughs> might not be often, but occasionally, you know, people who disagree can at least agree when progress has been made in certain areas. So I think that's I think that's worth worth noting. So yeah. focusing on the evidential problem of evil, then I just wanted to maybe sketch out some different ways that, that I've thought about this and different ways that I think theists can respond to it. And um yeah, I guess we'll we'll move along in in uh, degrees of of boldness and strength. How's that sound, Gary? That sounds perfect. All right. Yeah. So the first one is sort of the the quick hitter, the quick and easy response, and and it goes it goes like this, right? It's it's okay if if you're thinking about sort of just certain evidential considerations, right? And you're doing this sort of hypothesis testing, if you will, where you have some sort of worldview or paradigm, call it naturalism versus classical theism. These are the two paradigms we're trying to to evaluate, right? And naturalism is just a sort of more philosophically robust version of, of atheism. And then we're we're asking really what we're asking is how how expected is it that we would encounter this data, whatever it is, on this hypothesis versus some other hypothesis. And if it's if it's more expected given one hypothesis than another, then we think that that data actually counts as evidence for that hypothesis. So what the naturalist is saying is, look, given a sort of principle of indifference at the at, at the bottom of reality, that's, that's what natural is run by, right? So it's a sort of principle of utter indifference at the foundation of reality. Uh, it's just not surprising that we see a lot of suffering and evil in the world, right? I mean, that just sort of makes sense, right? There's just nothing that ultimately cares about us, that intended us. So, you know, that things sort of decay and tear each other apart and all these, you know, instances of natural suffering and moral evil, not surprising on naturalism, right? Uh, but then the skeptic will say, well, look, the theist, your principle is one of utter perfection, right? Pure actuality at the bottom. And uh, even if that's not incompatible with suffering and evil, uh, it just doesn't seem to be as expected 
given that hypothesis. And by expectation, we mean just like a broad degree of expectation. I don't know if you can actually realistically assign numerical values to this, but you know, some sort of broad general intuition of in expectation here. Uh, so that's that's sort of the, the way the, the argument works. And, and the naturalists will say, yeah, it just seems like it's better expected given naturalism and theism. So that's where we get that that evidential weight from. All right. I think the quick response to to this sort of argumentation is to go back to traditional philosophy and simply to say to the naturalists that are skeptic that, look, evidential considerations are at best secondary compared to metaphysical demonstrations. And if we already have arguments for the existence of God on the table that are metaphysical demonstrations, meaning they start from aspects of aspects of experience that are so basic they cannot even be coherently denied, say the occurrence of change or the fact of contingency, and then sort of logically entailed by those experiences once we do our philosophizing is this fundamental reality as the necessary sufficient condition for contingent things or changing things, and that gives you God's existence, well, then what we what we should and must do is we need to privilege those metaphysical demonstrations over the evidential considerations. So if we already, what I'm saying is if we already have a robust philosophical argument for the existence of God that says, look, there would be no contingent things at all, or there would be no changing things at all, unless God exists, then the problem of evil is really irrelevant, right? I mean, it's just, it's yeah, those right. evidential considerations are just, they're pointless, right? Unless the arguments for God are first attacked, metaphysical demonstrations have a certain privileging, I would say, in terms of belief formation, because they are so logically airtight over and above these evidential considerations, that this alone should cause us to say, even if I don't know how God allows this much suffering or why God allows it, given that I already do know that God exists from these other independent reasons, the problem of evil is not really a philosophical problem at all. It's a theological mystery. And so we need to just kind of shift it over into another category. Now, that's my first suggestion, because I, I, I admit it probably won't be the most satisfying to a committed skeptic. But to me, I think that's it's a matter of method and proper procedure. And that seems absolutely right. We should always take what is clear first and use that to shine light on what is unclear. Maybe it is unclear of why God allows all the suffering and evil of our experience. Maybe it is. However, I think it's absolutely clear that certain aspects of our experience, like contingency, for example, um, entail the existence of that necessary first being, which must be purely actual. And in that case, I just need to stick with what is clear to reason and privilege that over what is unclear, and then maybe see if I can use that to kind of shine more light on what is unclear. But to me, it always just seems like a, a mistaken method to take the less clear thing and allow it to override the more clear thing. Does that make sense, Gary? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Yeah, if anything, it shows that the problem lies maybe in a wrong expectation of what uh, creation would look like if God exists, since we we know through metaphysical proofs that God exists. Maybe there's something wrong with our expectations then. That seems to be the pro where the problem lies rather than to conclude, well, then, you know, naturalism is more likely because it seems more compatible with evil. Yeah, I think you're you're spot on there. And that's exactly what this should cause us to do. It should cause us to go and reevaluate um, our conception of God and ask ourselves, well, well, why would I have this this certain conception that the evil and suffering of our experience would be so unlikely um, if the god of classical theism exists. And I think you're right. I think what, what sort of drives a lot of people 
uh, on the skeptical side is a very faulty notion of God, but also other mistakes concerning general metaphysics and philosophical anthropology and, and stuff like that. Um, this will tie into my next point, but I want to develop it sort of um, I'll, I'll develop it a little bit now, because what I want to ultimately say is actually the suffering and evil of our experience is, in fact, better expected on classical theism than naturalism. And if that's right, upon substantial analysis, then it will be the case that the suffering and evil of our experience actually counts as evidence for rather than away from the existence of God. But to sort of prime that expectation to see how that follows, we do have to spend some time trying to really understand as best as we can, not just the nature of God, but the nature of a human being as well, philosophical anthropology and deeper metaphysical considerations. And unfortunately, I just don't think that that's um, something that skeptics do enough of. So they, they tend to have a, a very highly anthropomorphic notion of God. They have wackadoo metaphysics all across the board, impoverished philosophical anthropology. So I just want to say their expectations are, are, are flowing from an absurd hypothesis that, that nobody should accept on the first place. But once we kind of do do better philosophy and do better philosophy of God, we'll see that this will actually shift our expectations to the point where actually the world we experience is really just the sort of world that we would expect if God exists. And then we'll go further in this conversation and argue it's not at all the type of world we would expect if God does not exist, if that makes sense. All right. Yeah. Excellent. We're chatting with Pat Flynn of Philosophy for the People. More to come right after this. You listen to Hands-On Apologetics. This is Jesse Romero. You're listening to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And welcome back, everybody. We are chatting with Pat Flynn of Philosophy for the People. Also, you can check out his stuff at chroniclesofstrength.com. Talking about the problem of evil, and uh, Pat, you know, as a fitness coach, surprise, surprise, you're, you're increasing, you know, the weight of each one. You talked about how uh, that the, um, the problem of evil could be solved in one way by saying that the metaphysical proofs for God demonstrate exists therefore any expectations of how the world ought to be in light of evil is kind of irrelevant and then right before the break you started laying out the next increment which basically says no this is probably what you would expect if god does exist yeah so there there are certain theist philosophers who um are willing to admit um I don't think they should, but they do say, yeah, it seems like evil would uh, count against the existence of God. But, hey, look, we have all this other stuff which completely overwhelms that evidence, physical fine-tuning, biological complexity, whatever. So it becomes a sort of evidential weighing game. I think that's completely wrong-headed. I mean, I've always uh, – I've had this deep intuition for a long time, Gary, that if God exists – Probably nothing ultimately should count as evidence against the existence of God if we're if we're doing if we're doing things right. Um, so yeah, here let's think about let's think about this. I, I've been I've been thinking about is it is it true is it true that naturalism would predict a world like ours? And honestly, I don't see it. So so one sense is is a little bit more basic, and another sense gets uh, I think a little bit more interesting and, and technical. We'll start in the basic sense. So first off, if naturalism is run by a principle of indifference, fundamental reality is inherently mindless. It's just some physical stuff, whatever that is. Naturalists vary in their commitments, but it's not. It's not conscious. It's not intentional. It's not aiming for anything. It's neither beneficent nor malevolent. It's just indifferent, right? Mm -hmm. 
Okay, great. Well, I think that there's a, a certain number of hurdles that that naturalism, if that's your hypothesis, is never going to be able to clear to even get to the possibility of explaining evil in the first place. So think about this, right? If we have to make a judgment that evil has occurred, um, that that the fact of that judgment is contingent upon many other factors. It's not something that can just happen in complete isolation. It requires not just that contingent things exist, which I think already entails the existence of God, but it requires that conscious beings exist, that conscious beings that are capable of reasoning exist, that conscious beings that are capable of making moral judgments and presumably having moral knowledge exists. And these are all data points that I think naturalism either fails to explain completely, it's impossible for naturalism to explain, or theism explains a lot better. So think of it, think of, here's an analogy to help people see what the, what the difficulty is. Imagine that you learned that somebody just won an obstacle course race and that there were just two competitors in this obstacle course race. And the final obstacle is somebody has to lift one of those big kind of bouldery things and put it up on a pedestal. People are probably familiar with that, right? And you learn some initial information, right? A little superficial, but initial information. One competitor, it kind of looks like me, not the biggest guy, a little bit wiry, scrawny, um, Okay, so that's that's one competitor. The second competitor you learn has uh, is very burly upper body, big biceps, stuff like that, right? Well, initially you might think that, oh, it's probably the second competitor that won. He seems better suited to lift that boulder, right? Mm -hmm. And initially and superficially, that seems plausible. But now let's say that you go deeper and you learn, you learn uh, a lot more information. And let's say that you learn that there's a bunch of prior obstacles. And these obstacles include long jumping, swimming, sprinting, climbing, running long distances, all these different things, right? Um, and then you also learn more information about the competitors. And you learn that the bigger guy with the biceps actually has no 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 legs, right? <laughs> he's, in, he's, got, he's got no legs at all. Um, he's, he's, uh, his proprioception's all off. He can only really kind of spin in circles, right? He's got all these other disabilities and, and issues, right? Now what you naturally do is you revise your conclusion and you say, okay, even if I thought it would be difficult for that first competitor to lift the boulder, he had to have won because the second competitor couldn't even get to the boulder. It would be impossible for them to get to the boulder. So, so given that somebody finished it, even if it was hard for that first competitor to lift the boulder, it had to be that first competitor because there's in principle – barriers that the second competitor could not cross to even get to that boulder. And I want to say minimally that's how Thea should think about the problem of evil, where the problem of evil represents the boulder and the theist represents the first competitor and the naturalist represents the second competitor. People tend to think about it too superficially, where they just focus on the superficial analysis and data points, but they don't engage the more substantial worldview of everything that needs to be explained on the way to even making the judgment that evil occurs. Teleology was another one of those data points that I that I forgot to mention. And what I say, once you widen that scope, once you widen the scope of entailments from evil, you'll see that naturalism is out of the race really early on, really early on. Uh, so that's that is another way, I think, of thinking about this helpful. But I want to go I want to actually go even further, and I want to see if I can push the analogy further by saying you actually learn more about competitor one as well, such that he's a world-class powerlifter, even if he doesn't look especially strong on the outside. 
you you discover that yeah he's he's set records in lifting boulders previously and yeah he's wiry but he for his for his size he's actually far stronger relatively than than the naturalist um but let me pause there and see if you have any thoughts on that on that first part of the analogy before we we go any any deeper into it yeah i enjoyed it uh first it's interesting you liken yourself to the winner so that was that was cool always appropriate uh, and also not having legs would be a detriment in the long jump so i totally follow your analogy 100 percent, and i think it is a good analogy because you don't even get to the question of the problem of evil they kind of skip over all those problems and just say yeah well what about this final event if you will Right. And who's more likely to pick up the boulders? But you're absolutely right, though. You have to get to that final event. And I think part of the, the strength of that line of argument is there's lots of things you could show that naturalism just can't explain to even lead up to that. Like, how, how do you discern what is evil if God doesn't exist? If reality is totally indifferent, how can you discern anything within indifference? Yes. Yeah. No, I, I certainly agree with that. And a lot of naturalists are sort of just sort of, yeah, they're sort of assuming a moral realism and, and moral knowledge. And I, I don't think those are things that can be adequately explained by a naturalistic paradigm. But even if you even if you just want to knock those data points out and say, OK, maybe there's some error theory and we're just sort of deluded in our moral beliefs. That's fine. You still have to deal with consciousness. You still have to deal with reasoning. You still have to deal with teleology. And, and the naturalist is stuck at every one of those barriers in principle. And by in principle, I mean like this brings naturalism down to probability zero, which is sticky, right? Any evidential considerations thereafter are just completely irrelevant. But let's just let's just play nice and say, okay, well, let's just for the sake of argument, just pretend that naturalism can clear those barriers and actually get to to the boulder, right? Okay. <laughs> Somehow, by miracle, by God's grace, <laughs> this competitor <laughs> gets gets to the boulder. And then we can ask, okay, is naturalism still more likely to lift that boulder? And here I want to say, no, it's it's definitely not. And the reason is this. The suffering and evil that we, let me frame it this way for theism to be compatible with suffering and evil. I agree that it has to be a, a certain range of suffering and evil. It has to be a range of suffering and evil that would be conducive for certain greater goods for general um, emergence of saints, let's call it that, for the general emergence of saints, right? And it does seem, it does indeed seem to be that that is the world that we fall in. There are great evils in this world, but what we what we do know, what we do know is that the human soul in this world has been able to, and in fact has overcome even the worst evils of this world, right? I mean, we have saints from all ages, from the most horrible situations that overcame the most preposterous evils and were saints because of it, right? I mean, the, the stories of this uh, absolutely abound. We do not have any decisive evidence that nobody has ever been ultimately defeated by evil. The worst we have is it seems like some people just haven't ultimately defeated evil in this life. But theism entails an afterlife as far as I'm concerned, so you can't really make a decision that way. But we can know from our experience in this life that the human soul has overcome even the worst evils ever of our experience, right? So we do seem to fall within a range of evils that would be conducive for redemption, soul building, saint making, all that sort of thing. And I think most people would say that if God is going to permit a world of suffering and evil, it would have to be a world broadly like that, right? Hmm. Now, what I think people fail to consider, especially the naturalist, is that isn't the only range, Um 
of suffering and evil that could have occurred. In fact, it seems like suffering and evil could have been far worse or far less in terms of duration, intensity, types, quantity, frequency, you name it. I mean, it seems like it's it's perfectly feasible, and I know no reason why this couldn't have been the case if naturalism is true, that the suffering and evil could have been so bad uh, that as soon as sort of conscious beings came online, they all just killed themselves, right? It just isn't yeah, worth right. it, right? That yeah. seems entirely feasible, like that, that, that it's too much, right? That, that we all succumb to complete despair or whoever are the first sort of conscious ancestors were just can't just suffer too much that they just cease to be a, a going concern. Right. But we know suicide is the exception, not the rule in this world. But it seems like it could have been the other way around, if you follow me. Right. Yeah. It also seems like that suffering and evil could have been so much less. Right. That maybe you just have the occasional mosquito bite and that's it. But then there's no like real opportunities for the greater goods of courage, compassion, empathy, even going so far as to things like atonement and redemption and all this other stuff, right? You, you see where I'm going with this, yeah. Gary? Yeah. So I'm setting up an analogy here with the physical fine-tuning argument from evil, where <laughs> it seems like the suffering and evil of our experience is indeed finely tuned for the making of saints, I would argue. And this is exactly what we would expect if God exists. In fact, I think this is the only range that's ultimately compatible with theism. But it's not what we would expect if it's just aimed at by a principle of indifference. If indifference is aiming, there is no aim. It could have landed anywhere. So the fact that we land in that narrow band predicted by theism, as opposed to any other way it could have gone, is, I think, exactly a parallel to their argument for physical fine-tuning, such that given that we are in that narrow band, this has to count as evidence that the hypothesis, the true hypothesis at bottom, is indeed the classical theistic one. Does that make sense, Gary? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. It's a very interesting uh, take to make, and I could see the analogy with fine-tuning. Uh, so, yeah, maybe uh, we're coming up to the break. Maybe on the other side of the break we can maybe... Uh, cut those down into some basic steps that yes. people can take and uh all right i hear the music coming up we're chatting with pat flynn of the pat flynn show also philosophy for the people chronicles strength.com check out his stuff more to come right after this you're listening to hands-on apologetics now back to hands-on apologetics with gary machuda if you'd like to join the conversation Call 888-526-2151. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody. We're chatting with Pat Flynn of The Pat Flynn Show, also philosophy for the people on YouTube. You can check out his stuff at chroniclesofstrength.com. Talking about the problem of evil, and Pat, that yeah, that's a really good way to lay things out, is to... Uh, that you could show that no, the the ex, you know the level of experience of evil in the world seems to be remarkably fine tuned to what you would expect, given what we know in metaphysics about God. Right. Uh, so yeah, let's let's try to break that down a little bit because it yes. seems like there's a couple of steps to your argument that I think are pretty simple. Right. So I think one thing we have to do, which we hinted at earlier, is go back and examine that expectation, because we said a lot of times people don't have this expectation because they have a faulty, I think, general metaphysic. And uh, so, yeah, let's 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 ask, well, why would we expect 
the sort of general range of suffering and evil of our experience if God exists. And I think it comes down to this. Here's here's the brief sketch, right? So we know through the traditional metaphysics of Thomas Aquinas and, and others in the traditional of, of Aristotle, I would even say Plato to a large extent, right? That you get back to this fundamental first cause that is purely actual. And this purely actual first cause is utterly unique. It's the only being that is purely actual, the only being that can be purely actual. It's the only truly necessary being. Everything else is a composite. It's a composite of act and potency. It's existentially needy. It requires the sort of donation of existence to its essence for as long as it exists, right? So they're just they're on just completely different metaphysical planes. Now, God, uh, as as a purely actual being, is also a purely good being. God is subsistent goodness. Now, why is this? Because, again, in traditional metaphysics, you have this principle of convertibility between being and goodness, that that, that goodness just is being under the aspect of desirability. And if that's right, which I think it is, then God is purely actual will be purely good as well. Right now, everything else that that God creates motivated by his his own goodness uh, could never be God, right? It's it's always going to be a limited being. It's always going to be a composite being. It's always going to be a finite being, and it's always going to be a fallible being. This is a strict, necessary metaphysical truth. Now, if God wants to um, create a world where we can have friendships, communion, and love with God, bring other beings about, beings like us where, that can experience true friendship and communion and love with God, this requires that God's going to have to bring about independent free wills. You can't have love without the uniting of two free wills. But you kind of have a hard metaphysical limit in place insofar as only God's will is utterly impeccable. Only God's will is identical with the good as such. Every other will that God brings about, from us to the angels and any other wills that might be out there, they always have to look beyond themselves for the ultimate good, for the moral rule. Right. I'm not goodness as such. I'm not even humanity as such. You know, I'm a I'm a participatory being like everything else in reality, except for God is participate in existence, participate in goodness. So whenever I make a judgment, I could consider the moral rule or I could not. Right. I'm not identical with the moral standard like God is as a subsistent good. And which means I could fail. I could fail in moral judgments. Angels could fail. Humans could fail. Any other being with independent free wills aside from God could fail because we're just on a different metaphysical par. Okay. So I don't, I, the wrong thing is I don't think it's, it's right to say that God allows a bunch of suffering and evil just so we can have like Martin Luther King's right. God wanted there to be racism just so you can have a Martin Luther King. I think that's a very perverted way to think about it. God wants friendships, communion, and love. That's what he wants. Right. But that entails that God's going to have to bring about other in beings with independent free wills that could fail and have indeed obviously failed, right? I don't think anyone would, would deny that. Even the pagans seem to have a notion that something went wrong, <laughs> something went wrong, right? A broad notion of, of original sin, right? Right. Now, could God give special graces to us that we always consider the moral rule in every situation? Uh, yeah, I think God could, but we have to draw a line between what God could do and what God would do. God is not just a, a perfect creator. He's a perfect governor. And if God's going to create nature, which means natures acting in coordination and in relationship with one another, he's generally going to guide things according to the type of being that they are. And our being is one of a fallible liberty. So even though God could illumine us in every instance, essentially by miracle, he's not going to do that for the same reason that God isn't going to just perform nonstop miracles all the time because it makes nonsense of nature. If you're constantly doing yeah. miracles, then nature makes no sense, and God is not in the business of nonsense. So certainly there could be exception cases. We believe that there have been in Christianity, including our blessed mother, but in the general run, 
God is going to work with things according to their mode of being. Ours is a fallible liberty. Now, here's the other good news. Um, God is, of course, so powerful that he knows that if we fail, he can work with that. He can bring other greater goods out of it. So he's not aiming for our failure. He's aiming for our love and communion. But it just so happens that that's sort of risky, even for God, right? Even for God, it's sort of risky. But it's worth it because God knows that from our failures, even the worst evils, greater goods can come about, can come about right? Some of the those logically dependent goods. Logically dependent goods are goods like courage, which requires or entails that there is difficult situations, for example, where there's real danger, or compassion or empathy, which entails that there's that there is suffering and stuff like that, right? And furthermore, that the conditions of suffering itself, even natural evils, are themselves medicinal and conducive. We know from experience that suffering, even when we don't see any reason for it at the time, we all have experiences where we look back and say, I'm thankful that happened because it helped me to grow closer to people, to grow in empathy, to become less egotistical, less narcissistic, right? To acquire more virtue, to acquire more perseverance, courage, ultimately to grow in holiness in saintliness. And so what I'm dancing around here are the deep sort of metaphysical reasons that give you the expectations both for natural and the moral evils that we see, so long as they fall within this particular range that's conducive for saint building, growing in holiness, redemption, all the things that the certainly the Catholic religion is committed to, and indeed, I think, a genuine, robust account of human free will as well. And I think this is just a sketch, of course, but I think when you do that substantial analysis, that's where you get the expectation and you realize, oh, yes, no, this is exactly the type of world that I would expect if the God of classical theism exists. So it, it's it's making a prediction. It seems like that prediction is accurate. And then we compare that to naturalism. Would I expect suffering evil to fall within this range, broadly speaking? Uh, maybe it could, but. How likely is it? Not It seems like not likely at all to me, right? <laughs> and so in that sense, we have one hypothesis that's making an accurate prediction. Another one, it's like it's like even if the guy had the strength to lift the boulder, return to the other analogy, we just like we, we have to like assume that he's blind and he could throw it in any direction, <laughs> right? Yeah, that's right. naturalism, right? Even yeah. if it even if it could explain suffering and evil, it could have thrown it in any direction far more far less anywhere. The fact that it lands right where it does, it seems like just the range that theism predicts means that upon substantial analysis, the suffering and evil of our experience, that's what's key to this argument, has to be, I think, not just good evidence, but decisive evidence for the existence of God. So hopefully that makes the picture a little bit more clear. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I love it. It's, it makes a lot of sense. And I, I think ultimately, push comes to shove, again, the uh, naturalist position has to punt and say it's just a brute fact that it is like this, you know. But yeah, or they're like, yeah, or they're going to have to tell some story of why naturalism predicts that it falls just within this range, too. And I don't think there's anything yeah. that could be forthcoming from a naturalist, Not, nothing from evolution, none of it. It really does yeah. seem like it would just be as just matter of pure happenstance that it fell just within the ranges uh, that it does. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, very good. I, I think it's powerful. Uh, do you have you um, thought of any counters to it? Uh, is there any possible rejoinders a, natural, a naturalist could make against that? 
Yeah, I mean, naturalists can always just just assert that it just it just had to be this way for some right. for some various reason, which naturalists like to do. Um, I don't find those those rejoinders at all convincing. We need some plausible, non completely ad hoc reason to think that it had to be this way. And I see no reason to think that the sort of the range of suffering and evil that we experience had to be, be this way or couldn't have been far worse or far better understanding that i mean better not necessarily better in the in the grand scheme but just yeah. a lot less suffering suffering yeah, and evil suffering. and and certainly nothing in in evolutionary science i think should cause us to to think that either especially given that that itself is supposedly run by a principle of indifference i think that probably their best move would be to try and um try and push gratuitous evils right evils that are not ultimately redeemed or not conducive to saint making but i i already tried to hedge against that at the beginning of this conversation where i emphasized it is clear to us that the human being has overcome every evil that has ever been thrown at them in 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 our existence right not not every individual one but they are in principle overcomable all right we know that mm -hmm. and that is clear we have decisive evidence of that we do have no clear evidence of gratuitous evils as in evils that are never ultimately defeated or overcome because theism, I argue, entails an afterlife. So the, the sort of worst uh, we have on a theist perspective is just some people in this life have not seemed to overcome or defeat all their evils. But that's that you could never argue that that's favorable or decisive for a naturalist without begging the question against the entailment of an afterlife for, for theism. Uh, so that I think that's probably the best move they could make. But for that reason, yeah. I think it ultimately fails. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think you're right. So okay, we're coming up to the end of the program. It's since it's been a long time, you know, get, get us up to date. What's going on with uh, philosophy for the people? Yeah, thank you, Gary. Lots of stuff. So Jim and I just finished up a series on Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. Uh, so we've have a number of series over on the channel. We did Plato's Republic, uh, Leibniz's Ultimate Origination of Things. So if people are into contingency arguments, you might like that. Just finished Aristotle. Um, yeah, just uh, just cranking out lots of content. Had a great conversation with Dr. James Dolzell on divine simplicity uh, last week. I, I, I thought that was a really good one for people who like to nerd out, I guess, on on that, you know, philosophy of God and, and metaphysics. And uh yeah, so philosophy for the people over on YouTube. We're just doing what we can to uh, make difficult thought a little bit more accessible. Mm -hmm. Awesome, awesome. Now, in addition to that, you have your other channel as well, right? Yes, yeah, so the Pat Flynn Show is the sort of iTunes counterpart, and that features a number of the segments from Philosophy for the People, but also has more of the generalist theme. So you'll get some episodes based on uh, some episodes focused on fitness and, and stuff like that as well on there. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Yeah, man, you're keeping busy, I tell you. It's a reason why you haven't been on the show. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's been busy, and Christine is due a week from uh, a week from now too. So we're expecting uh, awesome. child number five pretty much any minute. Yeah, awesome, awesome, awesome. Very exciting, and uh, yeah, I I love the stuff you do. I binge watch, you know, all the stuff, and uh, I I love it when you go through books, you know, because uh, Plato's Republic has been a long time since I read that, and. Uh, it was just cool getting different insights. So, hey, keep up the great work because uh, we really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Gary, and, and likewise, love all the work that you're doing. So, yeah, please uh, please keep at it on your end as well. Always a pleasure to be here. All right. Well, hey, uh, I can't believe the, the hour has flown, but uh, really cool stuff. Yeah, check out Pat's stuff, Philosophy for the People. I, I subscribe and I watch it all the time just to try to keep sharp in that area of apologetics. 
Coming up next, High Impact Catholic Talk coming at you with the Terry and Jesse Show. Thank you so much for listening. And God willing, we'll be back again tomorrow. Do this thing we call hands-on apologetics. Bye-bye, everyone. Take care.